What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Facebook taking a stand on future election advertising and investors looking back to the future for the markets. When you talk about sentiment and some of the ridiculous market activities of 1999, I think we're a little bit more uh, sophisticated now than we were then. No such thing as a free lunch or a free trade. Finance app Robinhood is under investigation. It might be favored by younger traders, but former SEC Chairman Harvey Pitt says being green has its price. We're dealing with a whole generation of millennials who are not used to trading in the markets, and therefore they may not understand what the consequences are. And working from home till 2021, and beyond. Details from a staffing firm's forward-looking survey. It's a new workplace, it's a new workforce, and the worker is now interested in balancing their life. It's Thursday, September 3rd, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Mike Santoli and Brian Sullivan. Joe and Andrew are out today. Guys, welcome. A lot to talk about. Yesterday's rally was one to watch. It sent the Dow back above 29,000 for the first time since February 20th. It was a gain of more than 450 points, 1.6%. And for once, it was the Dow and the S&P that were outperforming the NASDAQ. Uh, S&P was up by 1.5%. The NASDAQ was up by by just 1%, so relatively speaking. Uh, You you did see some uh, change in rotation from what was happening there. It was some of the big uh, big stocks, the big gainers that we've seen in the past, like Apple and Tesla, that were giving back some of those gains. But then you saw stocks like IBM really picking up some steam. If you've been looking at what's happened, not only for the first few days of September, but all of July and August, some pretty spectacular gains. But Mike and, and Brian, those, those, uh, the movements we saw yesterday were interesting just in terms of the rotation. Yeah, I would say as a general matter, when the overheated stocks, the ones that have been leading, uh, have to pull back, and they always will at some point have to have these pullbacks, the fact that the rest of the market can absorb it and do okay uh, on a given day, certainly a net positive. Uh, doesn't change the, the fact, though, that uh, we've traveled in a pretty uh, steep angle higher here just for the overall market, and there's a jumpiness to this market, despite it being what ought to be perhaps a, a slow late summer week. Uh, pretty heavy volumes. You're seeing volatility of, of all sorts crop up. And, and all that stuff suggests that you know, there's, a, there's a different energy to this market than there has been in the past, like in 2017, 2013, when it was just this very methodical grind higher. Not, not sure what the implications so, so there, are, but there's something different. Yeah. And, and so without getting too in the weeds, I was on the phone with a couple of traders yesterday. Yesterday, what was called a gamma squeeze. Yeah, and yeah. I don't want to get too mechanical about it. But basically, in the last couple of days, there's been huge options buying in the big technology stocks, billions of options being bought in the biggest names. And what happened yesterday is market players, for whatever reason, and that's kind of the question, bought a huge amount of out of the money calls. In other words, they bought these huge call options that were out of the money. What that does is that forces those that own them to buy the, that are selling them to them, to buy the underlying equity. In other words, it was almost like a short squeeze without getting too in the weeds, but it was on the options side, but it forced huge amounts of buying 
in the underlying equities. So really it was an options trade that I don't want to say went bad because it might have gone very well for a couple of market, huge market participants, but I can't express how big the options volume in billions of dollars has been the last couple of sessions. It's been really, I would say, unprecedented, which has also forced equities to move. I would, I would say that's exactly yeah, Brian, true, Brian. I, okay. I, would, I wouldn't call it a day, though. I don't think it was a one-day event. It was just some, some sweep. It's been going on for a while. There's been a lot of just sort of escalating um, speculation up to upside options. If you look at Apple as a single stock situation, just absolutely massive, constant buying pressure in call options, which does have that short-term effect of essentially people having to, to buy the stock. So you do have this feedback loop that lasts until it, la until it doesn't, right? That's what always, uh, yeah. always happens. And, and, and the implication is that just on a statistical basis, people are paying multiples for upside uh, possibilities uh, th than they're willing to pay for downside protection. And that's something that you know, happens in the latter part of a rally or when things are starting to get a little bit heated. Brian, the traders that you spoke with yesterday, did they say who was doing the buying? Are these like long-term professional traders doing this? Is this the new retail investor who's in? Oh, no, this, this is big money, Becky. I mean, in fact, uh, there's this, again, I don't want to get too down into it. There's a product called Delta One, which is kind of a new hedge fund type of basket product, which has been, I don't want to say it's new, it's been growing the last couple of years. These are huge buyers. Of course, we don't know. They might, but they're not going to tell me on the phone. But these buyers, for whatever, to Mike's point, have been willing to pay a lot of money for upside. And, of course, you've got to protect that on the downside. And so, basically, I'm not saying that yesterday didn't, didn't matter. Listen, if you have a 401K or a 529 and the Dow goes up 400, you probably don't care that it was some kind of an options-related squeeze. You're just happy that the value of your portfolio went up, right? Well, it didn't matter, honey, because it was a gamma squeeze. No, that's not how it works. Yeah. But, to Mike's point, this... I'm not saying this is the end of a rally. Yeah. I certainly would never say that. That's Jim Cramer and others' job. But I would say there is a lot of weird mechanical stuff going on in the market, which if you look at it, go, huh, just watch this space. Yeah, and a lot of people are observing, just as a, an outgrowth of that, that the stocks have been going up, the indexes have been going up, and the volatility indexes, both to the S&P and the NASDAQ, have been rising as well. That's a little bit of a shift from what the norm is, and that's creating this other need to just sort of hedge your exposure, even if to the indexes, which feeds through to the VIX. So anyway, a lot of things uh, certainly percolating along these fronts, and, uh, and it's, 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 it's a real symptom of what's, what kind of market we're in, as opposed to the cause of it. A lot of this options buying has been in the same equities that everybody's been buying, the yeah. big tech stocks. And, of course, they kind of control everything. So much of this options right. activity has been in the big tech names. To Mike's point, the Apples, all the Fang names, whatever. So if this continues or has to be unwound now in certain ways, we could see monster moves in tech on the other side. By the way, guys, um, welcome to officially being squawkers because we managed to go six and a half minutes in the introduction without even moving on to the first story. And the producers I see have already moved a bunch of other stuff down that we were supposed to talk about. So well done. Well played. The current market environment has some investors drawing parallels between today and another major moment in finance history. This is a special report from CNBC, Dow 10,000. Good evening, everyone. Monday, March 29, 1999, the day that will be remembered as the first time the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed above the 10,000 mark. the late 90s, when our biggest problems were low-rise jeans and the Clinton impeachment. 1999, Britney, Jennifer Lopez, and the Backstreet Boys were taking the stages. AOL Instant Messenger was hot, and 
Mark Zuckerberg was just a 15-year-old boarding school kid. While he studied at Exeter, the world that he'd one day come to dominate was blowing up, at first in a good way, but then in a bad way. It was the dot-com bubble, the rise and then demise of giants like Pets.com and Napster. But before the bust was, of course, the boom. A frenzy when equity and specifically tech valuations were enormous, in part because of the retail investor, the little guy. And for some investors today, it's starting to feel familiar. Some stats for you. In the first quarter of the year 2000, the S&P closed at 1498. Today, it sits at a record 3580. 20 years ago, tech stocks made up 34% of the S&P. Today, it's 29%. Although most stocks are tech-based now anyway, so it might be even more. And back then, Microsoft was the most valuable company, hitting a market cap of over $600 billion. Of course, that's small potatoes looking at Apple's $2 trillion today. One of the men who saw it all, Howard Ward, CIO of Growth Equities at Gamco. 1999 was Ward's best year for investments. The fund he helped manage for Mario Gabelli was up over 43% that year. Here's Mike Santoli kicking off this comparison conversation. Howard, uh, great to see you. You navigated that market uh, back then fairly well. Uh, are you hearing the echoes right now? Uh, are you How concerned, I guess, are you at this point? Well, <clears throat> I want to make one uh, comment on, the, I think, the biggest difference between now and then has to do with interest rates. In 1999, the 10-year Treasury was going from 4 and 3 quarters percent to 7 percent. And today, we're at 65 basis points. This makes a huge difference in what the present value of, of future cash flows are worth. When you talk about sentiment and some of the ridiculous uh, uh, market activities of, the, of 1999, IPOs are a good gauge for that. In 1999, we had 486 IPOs. And so far this year, I think you're just barely over 100. I think that tells you something. Today's company is uh, much more profitable than then. Um, uh, and I think that uh, the metrics then, we went from price per pop to price per eyeball. I think we're a little bit more uh, sophisticated now than we were then. Uh, GDP growth back then was 4.7%. This year we're negative uh, 6%. Next year we could be positive 5%. Um, but in August we had the stock split mania. Tesla, Apple, we had the run in Zoom and, so, and some of the other pen, more than pandemic proof stocks. That was very much a red flag. We're at a high on the S&P. I, I do think that, uh, you know, be very careful putting cash to work here. We're heading into the difficult seasonal time for the market with an election looming. So I probably would be hesitant to put cash to work here. I probably think you're going to find a better time to do that between now and your end. What's fascinating, Howard, is we were also back then at the end of a very strong economic cycle, right? Very low unemployment and everything else. And right now you have a lot of this kind of excitement about growth tech stocks and everything else and high valuations. At the same time, we have an early cycle kind of recovery mode happening, too. How does that play into things? So, yes, I mean, one of the commonalities is the sort of increasing infatuation with technology stocks. But I'm just going to, I think that it's a little bit difficult now to talk about uh, a brand new expansion beginning because the one that ended, uh, courtesy of COVID, yeah. ended so abruptly, and it was really a, almost a two-month hiccup, you know, they happened to span two quarters, so it's a recession. But uh, it, it's, it's almost artificial in some sense. It's not, it's not like anything we've ever seen in the past. So I really sort of view this as more of a continuation of what had been the economic expansion that began in 2009, even though technically it's not. 
Right. And of course, we got, uh, you know, the Fed acting as if it is uh, a recession and trying to, to stimulate as much as it can. So uh, maybe that's also another backdrop. Howard, um, Frey, we got to leave it there. But thank you very much. Uh, getting a little concerned. The market's a little bit ahead of itself. Facebook has announced it will prohibit new political ads in the week before the election. CEO Mark Zuckerberg says the social media giant will also try to flag premature calls of victory by candidates and remove posts that aim to use COVID-19 to discourage voting. Here's Zuckerberg today on CBS This Morning. I certainly think that anyone who's saying that the election is going to be fraudulent, I know that's problematic. And I think additional context needs to be added to that. This is not just anyone. It's not just a regular Joe. It's a president of that's the United correct. States. Yes. This will definitely apply to the president um, once this uh, policy goes into place and it will apply to everyone equally. On Squawk Box today, Brian Sullivan discussed this development with CNBC's John Ford. It seems smart to me because in that sense, at least, you know, there are going to be other uh, types of ads that try to influence people's uh, impressions uh, about what's happening in society that might not be strictly labeled as political ads. But this will give Facebook some breathing room to really analyze what's going on in the network, to take stuff that's blatant and that might be trying to influence the election in a way uh, that isn't kosher yeah. and, and really zero in on that, Brian. Well, the, the other aspect of this, John, might be do something yourself before the government may do it for you, right? It's like you've got kids. It's like, oh, don't worry, Dad, you don't need to punish me. I will, uh, I'll give you my phone for a day because they don't want you to take it for three days. I think Facebook and others know that if we have more issues with the election with their platforms, it could be a big Uncle Sam coming in with punishment rather than them sort of, quote, punishing themselves by, by losing a week of revenue yeah, on the I, ad side. I don't think this is going to – I don't think that this is really going to prevent – government action. I mean, can you imagine uh, the government saying you can't run political ads on TV the week before the election? I don't think that would happen. I don't see how they carve out uh, a special case for, for social. On the other hand, those TV ads are vetted, are they not? I mean, it's a lot different to produce up. They've got to be approved. They've got to be checked out, right? That's big different than somebody just sort of, you know, coming up with an ad on their own to throw across Facebook and a million people see it before somebody can realize that it's just Bogus, I think is the California term for it. There is, <laughs> I think you're right, there is a volume issue online. I mean, you're certainly right about that. There's a limited number of TV stations, you know, cable networks that matter for uh, delivering a message in mass in the election, as opposed to uh, when it comes to social media, you can put a ton of these things out. And then, you know, even though there is a vetting process, it would be the election time or after by the time you end up catching some of this stuff that was bad. So so I think that's part of what Facebook wants to catch up to. But, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, Brian. I still don't think politicians are going to kneecap themselves, even if it looks like it makes sense to keep themselves from putting out new messages a week before an election. Just me. Let me tell you about another story. Shares of Fulgent Genetics are popping after the company announced a partnership with New York City to provide COVID tests to hundreds of thousands of students at about 1,600 locations. The company says that it will use its FDA-approved at-home test, which I believe is going to be used on-site, not at home, which provides results within 24 to 48 hours after it receives that sample. New York plans to randomly test about 10 to 20 percent of students, teachers and staffers at each school once a month. Each test costs between 70 and 90 dollars. And guys, I have to say this story raises more questions than than answers. I think uh, the idea that it's going to cost 70 to 90 dollars a test 
seems kind of crazy when you know that both Roche and Abbott have these $5 tests that, that are done in 15 minutes, not 24 to 48 hours, that are coming out at the end of this month. The idea of New York City trying to pay $70 to $90 per test and do this over an extended period of time. I realize they're trying to get schools open and want to get this lined up immediately. But that is going to be something that I think raises lots of questions, particularly when you see some of these contracts that are being looked at again for ventilators and other things that we were looking for in a hurry back in March and April. Um, I, I would love to have testing in schools. It would be great if it was 15 minutes. If it's 24 to 48 hours, maybe you can do it on a weekend and get it back in time before the kids are back in school. But there is going to be huge demand for this unless and until you get other therapeutics and vaccines that can go around this. Um, I'd certainly be willing to pay up for it, but at 70 to $90 a pop, that's going to be pretty, pretty, a just- pretty big heavy lift. It's, it seems like just a very New York City story, doesn't it, right? Everything just seems more expensive yeah. and more difficult in that town. But, you know, you know, going to our discussion yesterday, an interview with Randy Weingarten of the Teachers Federation, you know, listen, they've got to get yeah. the schools open. I'm not going to advocate for any position that makes anybody unsafe, but let's be clear, there are going to be huge consequences of this in five to ten years. Educational gaps, kids who learn to re- don't learn to read, kids dropping out of high school early. You know, there's going to be outcomes, other it's not a zero-sum game is my point. There's not just one way to look at this. We have to get the schools open and anything they can do to test it so these people can go to work. I got a lot of notes yesterday on our debate yesterday, and I think it's 40% of families have a school-age child at home. You think about that. If schools aren't open, if they're virtual, which, by the way, let's be clear, virtual school is, is not open. You've got to be there to supervise the kids, so it's the same as almost no school. That 40%, think about that. What do they do? you got to keep people safe, but we also need to think about the long-term consequences, not, not, not on the economy, talking about on mental health, dropping out of high school, bad outcomes otherwise. It's a hard conversation. Well, and, and I think the, the issue I kind of took away from yesterday is, okay, you can say that you're delaying the school opening by 10 days. What happens on September 21st? How many of those schools will be open? Because the, the checklist they've come up with is extensive. I've got kids going back to school today, other kids who went back to school yesterday. I, I want them to be safe. I want the environment to be safe. I'm very worried about that, but I'm also worried about them not getting the in-school learning if, if, if things don't go well. So, you know, the idea that this is a plan they've just come up with, they're going to try and implement this in 10 days, I, it's, it's really frustrating that this hasn't well, just, been in the works you know, for four or five months. Well, you're exactly right, Becky. I mean, you know, again, uh, they've got a lot of teachers, friends out there, and they're, they're hamstrung by all kinds of rules and levels of bureaucracy. But, you know, th- there was the whole summer. It's like this is like some sort of a new thing. This is month six. You know, I, I will say this. I've had a lot of friends, probably like you guys have, who, who've left New York or New Jersey for warmer climates. And warmer is probably better, right? I mean, I grew up in Southern California, guys. I don't know, Mike, I don't know where you grew up. Yeah. My, high, my elementary schools were pretty much all outside. You ever see Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Yep. Right? That was pretty much my school. Here's you did Spicoli. not have indoor hallways. I mean, yeah, you, by the way, I went to school with like 12 Jeff Spicolis. Uh, you, you could have classes outside there. In New York, in the crowded New York City schools, yeah. some of them are three and four stories tall. It's tight hallways. They're in a lot no, look, more of a difficult situation. I have, t- I have two kids in the New York clients. City school system. I mean, so, you know, we got delayed. And I think a lot of it is, is, is they're relying in a sense on the fact that 
community spread in New York City is actually really low right now. So I think they're kind of trying to execute this checklist, but also trying to hope they get lucky. And, and this sort of testing regime looks a little bit more like a survey and a way to monitor things as opposed to some kind of rigorous, you know, if you have a temperature, you're not walking in the building. So very, very experimental. I, yeah. I think not a huge percentage of kids in, in, in my kid's school are going to be in person very much. Uh, so it's uh, but you know it's the school always starts late in New York City. I mean they're hiring teachers to the last moment. So you know the size and scale of it does hold it back to a large degree. Mike, I don't know you, you're, you're living it, brother. So I yeah. you know I, well, who am I to wax poetic when you you and they're your family a little older, got to deal a little with more self sufficient. But yeah, that's good. I mean yeah, and that's a huge difference too. If you're 14 or 15, you might be able to pull it off. You know if you're sick, I've got a five year old who's turning six soon. I, no. I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know. Can he do Zoom? I, I'm not sure. I'm you know, I mean, we're told not to be on yeah. the screens. Now we're going to be on screens all day. Yeah, I don't know what they're going to do. But we'll listen, we're all going to figure it out. A lot of families are facing tough times out there. There's, all I'm saying is there's multi-levels to the debate and discussion, and it's an impossible one, and there's no good outcomes, and there's, <laughs> it's just yeah. an impossible conversation. Next on Squawk Pod, viral trading app Robinhood is in some hot water. Former SEC Chairman Harvey Pitt breaks down why. There's a serious difficulty when people don't understand where their money is coming from and why they're able to get a costless execution service. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. This is Squawk Pod. All right, good morning and welcome or welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Brian Sullivan along with Becky and Mike Santoli. Joe and Andrew have the day off. Robin Hood is a legendary outlaw, a hero of English folklore who robbed from the rich to give to the poor. He had a band of merry men you might have heard of. Robin Hood is also a financial upstart, changing the rules for retail investing. The brokerage firm was founded in 2013 and developed a popular app that allowed consumers to trade individual stocks, options, and cryptocurrencies, all without a commission, for free. The trading app added 3 million new accounts in the volatile first four months of 2020, many of them first-time buyers of stocks who are spending time this pandemic feeling the rush of the market's run-up since the March lows. I like the term Robin Hoodies. It reflects the way we live now. News broke yesterday that Robin Hood is facing a civil fraud investigation from the SEC. The probe centers on whether Robin Hood initially failed to fully disclose its practice of selling clients' orders to high-speed trading firms. The Wall Street Journal reports that the practice wasn't disclosed on Robin Hood's website until 2018. Payment for order flow, which is legal, accounted for about half of Robin Hood's revenue that year, 2018, when it was first disclosed. The Journal report says the investigation is at an advanced stage and could result in a fine of more than 10 million dollars if Robin Hood agrees to settle with the SEC. Let's get back to Brian Sullivan. Joining us now is Harvey Pitt, CEO of Colorama Partners LLC and former SEC chairman. I guess, Harvey, good to see you. That first, Robin Hood did not reveal this. They updated later their website to reveal something like basically we sell information to other market participants. What specifically do you believe 
that the SEC is looking at here, and what do you think the ultimate outcome may be? Well, at this point, of course, we don't know precisely what they're looking at, but I would assume it was the lack of disclosures, which went on for a considerable length of time. They've now corrected it, which will help them. But the fact that they didn't tell people where their orders were going and how Robinhood was making money um, is a clear violation of SEC rules. Now, we, we got into a big discussion. It was Andrew and I and, and uh, uh, some others, I think, a couple of months ago about this idea of the order flow. And for our viewers that don't fully understand what it is, and I'm going to say it on a layman's term and correct me if I'm wrong, basically... They know what I'm buying, and then they sell that information milliseconds or whatever before to the Susquehannas, the Citadels, the Wolverines, the Virtues of the world. And the idea being is that because they're selling that order flow, Citadel knows what I'm going to do before I'm actually able to do it and may be able to get ahead of it. And I'm trying to use my words carefully here, Harvey, because there are certain trigger words you understand uh, in the markets. What do you think specifically in that order flow and the way they sell that data that might be against SEC rules? Well, it's um, the SEC staff has published a report um, about a year or a year and a half ago in which it said that um, there isn't necessarily any detriment to investors by having the sale of order flow. Um, the investors may still be getting a better price than they otherwise would be able to get. But what you do have is the potential for conflicts. And it's important for investors to know what's going to happen with their information and their orders. Part of the difficulty with Robinhood is we're dealing with a whole generation of millennials who are not used to trading in the markets, and therefore they may not understand what the consequences are of using what appears to be a completely costless execution service. I mean, let's put it into just a broader context in terms of this activity, in terms of payment for order flow. Robinhood has to have their clients' trades executed somewhere. Market makers execute those trades, and the payments are for essentially the, the, the privilege or the, the ability to execute those trades, right? Um, so it's, it's industry practice. This is pretty much what all the online brokers do. And in 2014, I, we looked back. I wrote a story on Robinhood when it was launched, and they were upfront about the fact that that's one of their revenue streams is going to be payment for order flow. Did they simply not formally disclose it, presumably, in, uh, in a way that was direct client communications? Do you think that's been uh, perhaps where the gap was? I think part of that is where the gap was. Um, their customers, and they've, um, uh, in these times, this is a bad word, but they've gone viral with their um, uh, application here. Uh, I think there's a serious difficulty when people don't understand where their money is coming from and why they're able to get a costless execution service. In essence, it's the old story about there being no free lunch. There is always a cost associated with everything, and customers have the right to know that before they engage in trading. And Yeah, and Harvey, what do you think should be the appropriate punishment? Just a fine and we move on and everything stays the way it is now? My view is they've 
um, they've corrected the um, issues. So I think here there um, will probably be a fine. There will probably be uh, perhaps some order requiring them uh, to do more with respect to educating their customers and making disclosures in lay terms so that people understand exactly how the service operates and where the potential conflicts exist. Harvey Pitt, Calorama Partners, LLC. It's a big story, Harvey. We appreciate you chiming in. I'll wait and see how the SEC thing plays out. Harvey, thank you. Have a great day. You too. Coming up on Squawk Pod, what employees and employers really want in a new normal. After health concerns, you know, physical health concerns, the second biggest concern was losing the flexibility they've gained during this crisis. On the employer side, 30% of the employers that we surveyed said they intend to offer remote working or some kind of flexible working. Pandemic survey results from Manpower Group after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Becky Quick. As Jobs Friday approaches, there's some new data that's emerging on what parts of our pandemic work lives are here to stay. For more on this, we welcome Becky Frankowitz. She is president of Manpower Group North America. And Becky, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So I know a lot of people have spent the last several months kind of reevaluating what they do with work, what they do with their family. And, and I think it's kind of interesting what your survey has brought out. That's something that lots of people think they're going to reassess um, their work lives going forward, right? Yes, Becky. So at Manpower Group, we tend to analyze the labor market in three vectors. So first, what's happening real time with hiring across our country? Second, forward looking, how are employers thinking about hiring across the, the next quarter? And then finally, in what you were referring to, any long term shifts that we see that are impacting the world of work. So in terms of real-time hiring that we're seeing today, you know, we have BLS numbers tomorrow. Those are a bit in the past, and the labor market's changing by the day. So in real time, we continue to see evidence of a two-speed recovery, a K-shaped recovery, where there's increased demand for some roles and decline in demand for others. Um, on the increasing side, think about things that transform businesses, you know, software developers, app developers, the IT space. Um, we're also seeing increase in demand for jobs that move things, um, logistics workers, uh, warehouse workers, things like that. And then finally, those that help people that truly have gotten us through this pandemic, the healthcare worker sector. On the decline, interestingly enough, 
The service sector, cashiers, particularly in clothing, really having a challenging time. We're seeing some decline in maintenance um, in terms of companies deciding what to do with their real estate and what to do with their hours. On the forward-looking side, we do a quarterly survey simply asking American employers, you know, about 8,000 American employers, what are your hiring intentions for the quarter ahead? So it's a little bit of employer sentiment, if you will. And we were pleased to see Q3 was a marked improvement over Q2. Now, granted, nowhere near how we entered this, this year in, in January 2020, but still an improvement in how they're looking at the intention to hire. And that's truly across, across sectors. And then finally, in the long term, Becky, um, you know, it's a dynamic situation. When you and I spoke just a couple of months ago, I shared with you that 30% of American employers were saying it's going to take 12 months or longer. So only 30% to get back to pre-hiring pandemic levels. And now we're seeing a short few months later, over 60% of companies are saying it's going to take a year or more to get back to pre-pandemic hiring. So a very dynamic labor force is what we're facing today. And that that doesn't sound great. It sounds like uh, Americans are going to be in for a tougher time just in terms of, of waiting for these jobs to come back. Maybe that explains some of the anxiety that came out when you talked to employees, 91 percent of whom said keeping their job is their, their, their top priority right now. Yes. Yeah, so I think it's a bit of a roller coaster of a recovery. You know, we take two steps forward and one step back. And we did ask American workers. We think it's important if their voices are heard as companies reopen in the workplace, and in some cases, the workforce. And you're correct, their number one um, hope after coming out of the crisis was keeping their job. But it was interesting, Becky, when we asked them what concerned them most, after health concerns, you know, physical health concerns, the second biggest concern was losing the flexibility that they've gained during this crisis. Um, we had more, more people uh, want to work remote a couple of days a week than wanted to work remote full time. And back to the employer survey that we did, that's the workers' view. On the employer side, 30% of the employers that we surveyed said they intend to offer remote working or some kind of flexible working. And 10% of these American employers said they intend to offer 100% option around remote working. So we are seeing the separation of the workforce and the workplace on both the employer and the employee side. The employees, I, I take it that's something they want well past the pandemic coming out, that this is more about a work-life balance than, than just pandemic concerns? Absolutely, Becky. In fact, they told us, you know, it's, it's simple from the worker view. They now have a taste of what it's like to live one life, this blend and flexibility between home and work. They also told us they want to work their way. You know, there's a big movement around work my way. So I want to decide where the workplace is. It may be a coffee shop today. It may be the office tomorrow. And then finally, they told us they wanted learning on demand. They wanted the chance to improve their skills because this whole idea that we've been talking for years now around reskilling has come to a head as we see this K-shaped recovery. And they want the opportunity to learn wherever they are. And by the way, we also heard from employers in this forward-looking survey that they're leaning into investing in reskilling. And so it's a, it's a new workplace. It's a new workforce. And the worker is now um, interested in balancing their life. We also saw a difference across generations, Becky. So Gen Z are most positive about coming back in the workplace because it's where they make their friendships. It's how they network, um, where it's interesting, Gen X and boomers, many of who are leading companies today in America, like that separation between work and home and will have a tendency to leverage the office for that separation. So we are also seeing some differences well, the across ones, generations. They're the ones, right, they're the ones who have kids at home who it, it probably makes a big difference for them too. Um, very quickly, yeah. Becky, the idea that this is a workers' market is crazy because you've got 10% plus unemployment. 
However, what you found when you looked at particular sectors like IT workers, they're less concerned about keeping their jobs and more concerned about just making sure they can work from wherever they want and they have that flexibility. So it, it seems like a separation, um, like you see everywhere, the haves and the have-nots, yeah. it's gotten steeper within the job market too. Yes, the skills revolution is alive and well, Becky, a huge separation for those that have the skills that can work and call the shots and those that don't. Becky, I want to thank you for your time and we look forward to talking to you again with the next survey. Thank you very much. And that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to Squawk Pod for free wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. If you like what you hear and you get Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Go on. It only takes a second. On TV, Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Brian Sullivan and Mike Santoli for sitting in today and partying like it's 1999. Becky, uh, if we're talking about uh, songs that encapsulate 1999, the, the month that the market peaked, March of, of 1999, Live in La Vida Loca uh, was released. So that seems pretty appropriate as well. Ah, <laughs> oh, now I got Ricky in my head. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, guys, thank you very much for both of you being here today. We'll see you back here tomorrow. All three of us will be here, and we've got that big government jobs report, so don't miss it. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.